Amazing. I was going to say, Shelley's going to come and preach. Super cool. I'm hoping you're going to explain why he sneezed seven times. Oh, no, I'm not actually. So but bizarre, I'm going to talk right? about lots of other things. Yeah, no, that's cool. I'm going to pray. Thank you. Shall I pray? Do you want to... Yeah, I was just going to leave that there in case it runs out of juice. Yeah, I apologise. It's not a Mac. We all know if it was uh. Apple, it would just last forever. But unfortunately, Windows. Now, now. Joking. All right, let me pray. Eh? Let me pray. Yeah. Yeah, kia ora, almighty God. Um, yeah, we'd... We're so grateful for the Bible, God. Mm. It'll be so hard doing this planet, kind of guessing. Um, what does God want us to do? What is God saying to us? I just love how we can, yeah, dig into your word and you speak so clearly to us. Eh? Yeah, I really lift up your servant, Shelley, before you, God. I pray for uh, real confidence for her as she stands on the authority of the word of God. Uh, he thinks that we're not just listening to Shelley tell us cool stuff but we're listening to Shelley unpack um, the authoritative word of God uh, that will always uh, impact our lives. So you give her real confidence as she, as she speaks to us, God, help her to know where you're guiding her, bits that you're changing as she preaches, eh? And just give her that, that confidence to, um, to yeah, encourage us, challenge us. We, that's what we're here for. That's what we need. Help us to hear from you as, as you speak through her to us. Mm. Yeah, I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Wow, Good. thank you. Good morning, everybody. I'm just going to move over here into my password. <laughs> it's always a good thing, isn't it? Well, it's really cool to be here this morning to talk to you on the topic that, um, that I chose from this message, which I've actually preached on before. So some of you ladies may have heard this, but I'm not apologising for that. Um, is about finding hope in the crises. And for many of us, our life... Um, can feel like a mountain range, back-to-back mountain range, driving us to keep pushing and climbing uphill. Or maybe we find ourselves trudging through the mud in the valley, and it's hard. And at times it can bring us to the point where we just want to give up, where it just feels like everything is, is hopeless. There's an overwhelming sense of hopelessness. But you know what? No one drifts to the top of a mountain And with any mountain, there's always a path to the top. And I know it's taxing and it's discouraging and we're constantly climbing and at certain time, we actually need to convict to have a personal conviction to keep going and a sense of hope to keep pushing on. And today my prayer is that we'll have that vision like that of a mountaineer and we'll find the path that takes us to the top of our mountains, and we can find hope in the crises. So my tramping experience is very minimal. My daughter's going to laugh out loud, I'm sure, about this. But anyway, I do recall a time when Rex and I, when we were taking the youth back in our young married days, we were on on a tramping experience. And in typical fashion, I'm not sure whether any of you other ladies find this when our men folk want to take us on or something that we know we really don't want to do. They really underplay it. So it was kind of this sense of, it's not going to be hard. You're going to love it. And it's not far. You know, they kind of do that, I think, with the hope that we won't pull out. Anyway, my suspicions were confirmed fairly quickly after I'd asked how long it would take to get to the hut. Oh, it's only about three hours. When the dock sign at the car park said eight hours to the summit. (laughs) Dock were right, just saying. And at the trickiest part, you know, I I imagined myself 
this young, fit person climbing this very um, steep mountain range. And we were on this really, you know, small ridge, holding on to a cable, um, you know, and I imagined myself looking like this, when in reality, this was me. <laughs> I hung on for dear life. Rex, who had been carrying my pack and his own for some time, um, was talking me across this little ridge like an emergency negotiator with the words of encouragement, like, no, put your right, no, no, your right foot, now lift your left foot. And so it went on while I wept. Actually, I howled all my way across in anguish. Um, and needless to say, my tramping days are well and truly over, and I think that's an amen to the whole family. Um, but there's some wonderful examples that are laid out for us in the reading, thanks Matt, this morning, um, of based, that are based on hope, um, vision and tenacity of a woman in the Bible that we can draw from as she demonstrated to never give up hope no matter the circumstances. And we're really going to dive into the second King's story, but first let's pray and ask God to open our hearts and our minds to his words this morning. Dear Father, we want to be overwhelmed by the depth of your love for us today. You know that you have a path mapped out for us to climb our mountains, that you journey with us, Lord, in the crisis so we don't lose hope. Your generous heart wants to bless us. You long to see us strong and confident, ready and armed to receive your direction for our lives, to be obedient to your calling, to help us through our sufferings, and to hear your still, small voice say, well done, and to keep moving forward. There's so much to learn, but you're gentle and patient with us, revealing these layers of yourself for us to explore and soak in at a pace we can handle. And we're humble before you this morning, Lord, but expectant to be filled with your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. In the reading we heard this morning about the Shemite woman who faced the man of God four, four times, four fingers, yes, um, two in the face of an unexpected blessing and two in the face of a massive crisis. And how she responded each time is really, really different. So what can we learn from the Shemite woman originally, um, sort of initially from this reading? Well, we're told that she's a Jew, but we're not told her name. Oops. Go back one. Um, she's not referred to as the wife of somebody, um, like so many women in the Bible are. She's identified as being a woman in her own right. She's said to be a great woman of the town, respected. She's tenacious and obviously well-connected, knowing who she needs to go to in order to get things she wants. She's well-to-do, a woman with money. She's observant, taking note that Elijah often comes this way. And she's hospitable urging him to stay for a meal, um, which in the long run he made his custom when he was in town. She's perceptive, realising that Elijah is a man of God, and she's discerning, always wanting to receive messages directly from Elijah. She's married, but she has no children. She's creative and practical, deciding that Elijah needed a little room up on the roof suitable for his means. Um, she's perhaps our first interior designer to be mentioned in the Bible. Uh, but this girl was on a mission. Um, and we're also not told her name. Um, her upstairs room 
uh, attached to the main house, needed a little makeover, and she wanted to make it fit for purpose, fitting it out in pieces, and we specifically told a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. So this girl who had some money in her pocket, she wanted to give Elijah the best, and little did she know, getting this bed and this room set up, that her only son, whom she never perceived possible of having, would be placed on it, waiting for Elijah to restore him back to life. This room would become a place where she was blessed, where she took solace, where miracles happened, and it was a safe place. Maybe we're not told that she delighted um, in preparing this space for Elijah to come and stay and wanted it to not only be functional, but to look good as well so that the man of God could enjoy this space. She wanted to spoil him a little bit and, um, in this room. So what are we told about Elijah? Well, Elijah, whose Hebrew names means God is my salvation, was kind towards women in particular. And in the same chapter within Kings, we read about the woman and her two sons with the olive oil that is in that same chapter previously where he had been kind. He took pity on the widow and her son um, so that they could sell the olive oil to survive. So Elijah's ministry lasted about 50 years and his approach was really different as a a prophet to to Elijah, where he was more into demonstrating God's power through his caring nature and everyone who came to him for help. He spent less time in conflict and evil like Elijah and more time being compassionate and caring to people. And the Bible records 18 encounters between Elijah and people in need. So his kind nature perhaps made him a little bit more observant. And he'd taken note about this wee room up on the roof with its bed and its table and its lamp. And he wanted the Shemanite woman to know that he was grateful and she needed to be rewarded for what she appears to have done as a generous gift. So what did he do? He said to his servant, Yehazi, call the Shemanite. The first of four occasions you know, when we call someone, it's a little bit like a command, isn't it? It's like, you know, I'm calling you. So you're expecting someone to either answer you or respond in some way. And in this case, our woman didn't ignore the call and she went. Perhaps she was thinking, oh my goodness, there's something wrong with the room or the, you know, nothing, something's not working or he's not happy. They needed something or needed her assistance. But I can just see her standing there quite unsuspectedly in the doorway before Gehazi, who in turn passes this message on to her from Elijah. He acknowledges that she's gone, you know, you've gone to a lot of trouble here and to make us feel welcome. So um, it's kind and generous of you and it hasn't gone unnoticed and deserves some kind of reward. So we ask her, what can we do for you? But before she can answer, he suggests perhaps we can take you, know, you to the king, we can introduce you to the courts of the king and the army and the commander and whatnot. So there she stands humbly and quietly listening. But our confident young woman says, I have a home among my own people. Or as the Message Bible puts it, I'm secure and satisfied in my family. In other words, I'm content with what I have, thanks. I'm here amongst my own people. I don't seek the corpse of the king. A total deflect of what really was a lovely compliment to her and an acknowledgement of a job well done. And this discerning woman quickly recognises, nah, that's not something that I want. That's not something I seek. 
this won't be a blessing to me. It's very much a thanks, but no thanks, Gehazi. And she walks away. And Gehazi conveys that back to Elijah, who wasn't really content with that answer. So he asked Gehazi, well, what should we do? Can't you just see those two boys up there? Hmm. This woman obviously doesn't seek recognition. Rather, she's secure and satisfied with what she has. Now, it's really interesting to note that the real observations about the Shemanite woman don't come from Elijah. They come from Gehazi. And it's him that points out to Elijah that um, she doesn't have a son, quickly followed by, and her husband is really old. (laughs) So upon reflection, Elijah calls her again, the second time. And again, she hears, and she responds, and she stands in the doorway. But this time, Elijah speaks over her directly. So standing there respectfully, and perhaps quite confidently that there's nothing they could possibly give her. This time Elijah doesn't doesn't ask her what she would like, but without hesitation he tells her what he's going to do for her. And he says in verse 15, in a year's time you will hold a son in your arms. Wow. Now standing in front of this man of God is our confident, smart, discerning woman Can't you sense the silent pause as she processes that piece of information? And her her response is really quite the recoil, where she almost rebukes Elijah and objects to him challenging his ability to make such a thing happen. And she says, oh no, my Lord. She objected, please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. In other words, hang on a minute, Elijah. Don't go there. This is a cruel thing to say to me, much like Sarah did in the face of such an idea. But in verse 17, the woman became pregnant, and the next year about the time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elijah had told her. Now, this second calling to the door and this message spoken directly over her from Elijah totally catches her off guard insofar as that this kind of blessing is beyond her wildest imagination that, you know, what would be possible for her. And sometimes we can be a bit like that with God too, limiting him in our minds of what might be possible, limiting him to what is the right response in a moment, perhaps a moment halfway up the mountain like I was, hanging on and clinging on in our moment of crises. So twice we've read that the Shemanite woman was called before Elijah and stands in the doorway. The first time given a message via someone else, asking her how she'd like to be rewarded and the suggestion thrown in. And the second time spoken directly over her, the blessing spoken directly over her. The first occasion she dismisses it and one that would not give her honour and acknowledgement, but it wasn't something she saw because she's discerning. But because of this thanks but no thanks, the blessing given to her is staggering. Imagine in that moment, the first time, being polite, she sort of went, oh, okay, thanks. And those boys went and arranged for her to meet in the the army and before the king and all the rest of it. She would have missed out on the amazing miracle and blessing that she never thought possible for her, a son. So, doors. 
there's a really beautiful learning in the place where the Shemanite woman stood, where she was called to, and where Elijah spoke to her. She summons, she hears the call, she hears and responds, and she stands. I just want to digress a little bit to think about that for a moment at the door. Now, doors are mentioned in the Bible 185 times. Don't go counting them. I might be wrong. It might be 186, but anyway, we'll take that. Um, and a few of them that are really lovely, of course, Matthew 6, 6, where it says, when you go, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Acts 14 and 27 When they arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Matthew 25 and 10. The bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. And John 10, 7. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. Doors and doorways are either a way forward to take us through to something or they hold us back and keep us contained or keep us safe. And the Hebrew word for door is delet, which translated means which hangs or swings and can be open or shut, obviously. But interestingly, the root word of the word delete means to hang down as a likened to the idea of letting down as with a bucket drawing from a well, as the same word for bucket comes from the same word. So there's also a mention in this explanation that it's a likened to life hanging by a slender thread. I remember a time in our lives, in Rex in our lives, when it felt like our life hanging by a thread. We'd been dairy farming for 12 years, for 25 years in total, but 12 years we were share milking out at Tupahu and we were really happy there. We had a wonderful boss, his name was Lawrence, Lawrence and Mary Davies. Lawrence treated us like one of his own kids. And Lawrence died really tragically and we were devastated. And of course Mary didn't want the farm, so the farm was put up for sale. So our hopes of ever owning our own farm were gone because Lawrence had kind of put things in place for us to potentially make that possible. So we were faced with selling the herd, our one and only asset. And of course that meant also that Rex didn't have a job. Um, we didn't have a home because when you're share milking, the home comes with the job. Um, the bank wouldn't lend us any money because Rex didn't have a job, but he couldn't leave the farm until the 1st of June. Um, so we couldn't buy anywhere, we couldn't go anywhere. My mum was dying of cancer. And then the, the herd did sell. And about six weeks later, the um, agent came back to us and said, oh, the guy who bought the heifers, he wants all his money back. And we were like, pardon? It was like six weeks ago. And they'd done some blood tests on them and found that they had antibodies to a condition called Neospora, which is what they get from dog feces. And our neighbours, who were our really good friends, fessed up to us once they heard this, that they were, they were teachers, and every Saturday they'd gather up all of their dog poos from their three dogs and throw them in the paddock, into our paddock. So our one and only asset that we had threatened having to give it all back, lose everything. 
Then there was a muck-up with the GST, and I don't know about you, but the inland revenue is a little bit terrifying, and the thought of owing a lot of money in GST was terrifying. We didn't have that. So it felt like things were just a way too much. We faced an unknown future. We had no job. We had no home, and all our money gone. Now, I'm not naturally a journaler, but for some reason I did journal during this time. And actually, I'm really, really glad I did because God's direction during this time was so incredibly powerful. And it's really neat to read back, isn't it, on your journals. And it says, I'm feeling so desperate about the future, Lord, for the farm. I cried out saying, I can't cope with much more, Lord. Mum is so very sick. And after this particular entry, she died three weeks later. And the reading for the day was in Hosea 2.15, where it says, There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And in that verse, which I had actually read before, there's three other mentions of the valley of Achor. And to be honest, I sort of had grappled with it and didn't really understand what it meant, the valley, what the reference was to the Valley of Achor. I knew that Achor was a real place. It was a muddy, gloomy, dejected valley in Jericho. It was the same valley where Achan caused Israel to sin. Now, hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But in that moment and in that time, I found little comfort in this verse, even though God gave it to me. I was sad, I was stressed, my mother had died, so I was grieving, things weren't good. I just wanted to let the sad things be the sad things and I wanted to sit in the suffering. And that's okay. Because I thought the learning from this verse was that we were in the Valley of Achor and that's, that's where we were going to be. We're in this Valley of Achor and that's our lot for this time. Our life felt like it was literally hanging by a thread. And I can tell you that that thread didn't break and I can tell you that God did draw us up out of that well and there's, there's a really miracle, amazing miracle he did, but that's another story for another day because we're very blessed and grateful for his faithfulness to us at that time. But you know what? I realise now that I was missing the point of this verse. It wasn't the valley of Achor that God wanted me to cling to and know it wasn't the solitude of the valley and the sense of hopelessness, feeling scared, you know, broken, grief-stricken. Rather, it was the door of hope that he wanted me to do. That was the bit he'd given me, but I couldn't see that. I was stuck in the valley. That's where he wanted to speak kindly to me. He wanted me to know and know that he was going to give me this door of hope. And do you know that the, the Hebrew word for hope is tevar? And I love this. Its root meaning pictures a cord attached to a thing longed for. Isn't that beautiful? And so aligned to what we know about doors and where that actually comes from. And I don't know about you, but when things get tough and we get stuck in the mud or we hang on to our thread down in our well, it's tough to live out, lift our heads and see anything, let alone a door of hope. How do we survive that? How do we keep hanging on before we're drawn up? Because in Psalms it tells us we will be drawn up. I will exalt you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, you have lifted me up. Well, our Shumanite woman, for her, tragedy was about to unfold. 
She was going to find herself down in the well. She was going to find herself in the Valley of Acre as well because in 2 Kings 4.18, we read that the child grew and one day he went out to his father who was with the reapers. Verse 19, he said to his father, my head, my head. And his father told him, carry him to his mother, which they do, and she cradles him. But at noon, he dies. Now, this is where the true character of our Sherman woman really reaches another level. Because it seems without hesitation, without any doubts in her mind, she knows exactly what she needs to do. She takes her precious boy up to the room, the room of spiritual significance. And she carefully places him on the bed. She may have even lit the lamp. And she shuts the door behind him. Her first response was to lay him at the source where the blessing had been given and where she had stood. Perhaps this room was off limits to the rest of the house, an anointed space reserved just for the man of God, so her boy would be safe there. Or perhaps she actually didn't want anyone to know that he was there because there were no funeral plans kicking around in this mama's head. There's no talk of her crying, weeping or wailing at the death of her precious boy. Rather, she's resolved and focused. She's acting in a way of a woman on a mission to get the help that she needs. And she calls her husband and she says to him directly, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I may go to the man of God quickly and return. Note she doesn't say, our son has died. And his reply would indicate that she shows no emotion to make him think any differently because he doesn't ask after the son and he's obviously oblivious to how sick he is. Rather, he says, why go to him today? It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. But she doesn't elaborate any further the reason giving to to visit Elijah. Rather, and I love what it says in the King James, she just says it's well. In other words, it doesn't need to be the new moon for me to celebrate to visit him because without further questioning, he just does what she asks for and returns to his reaping. She saddles a donkey and says to the servant, lead on and don't slow down for me unless I tell you to. She knows that to get to Elijah is going to be uncomfortable. And despite that, she goes for it. Now, it's worth noting that the trip from Mount, from Suman to Mount Carmel, where Elijah was, is about 20 miles or 32 kilometres. And a donkey, according to Google, works at four, walks at four miles per hour. So working out the math means that at a minimum, this trip to Mount Carmel would take her at least five or six hours. Now, we know her son died at noon. So allowing for placing the child in the room, the conversation with her husband, the saddling up of the donkey, we could perhaps guess that she gets on the road at about 1pm. Now we also know that it's harvest time. So in Sherman, which is in Iraq, it's known for its blazing hot summers. And July being the hottest month, the temperatures can fluctuate anything between 35 and 46 degrees. So... A woman sets off at the hottest time of the day for a five-hour trip to Mount Carmel to get to Elijah. So this means her ETA to Elijah would have probably been about six o'clock at night. Now the Bible gives us this beautiful, beautiful picture where it says, 
Elijah sees her from a distance. He recognizes her silhouette. He knows her well. He knows that she's coming to see him. He sees her from afar. Something we can also cling to, eh? In our time of crises, Jesus sees us. He recognizes us. He knows us well. And he's ready and waiting for us. We might have made that uncomfortable trip to him. And on this occasion, he hasn't called her. She's come to him. And his response, being the kind man he is, is one of kindness because he says to Gehazi, run, run to meet her, knowing that there must be something wrong. And he says to him, pass on this message. Say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? Because Elijah knows these three things could be the reason that would warrant such a big trip at the hottest part of the day. He says, is it well? And she says, Teddy Gehazi, it is well. It's almost like a complete uh, repeat of what went on when the first time Gehazi gave her a message. But you see, Elijah knows that his first concern for her is, is it well with you? Does she need him urgently? Is it well with your husband? Because being a widow in that time was tough and Elijah knows this. He understands that. And is it well with the child, the most treasured thing to her that would drive her to make this trip so far? But anyway, they get to um, Elijah and she says by saying it as well, I don't want to explain myself to you. I'm, I'm going straight to the top again. I'm not going to explain my situation to you. Dismissing him, rather, she keeps her eyes on the goal. She's going right to the source. And how she reacts when she gets to Elijah is very different to the first two times she had met him. First two times she met him, she'd stood in the doorway. This time she falls at his feet. There's no standing. And Gehazi, Gehazi quickly rushes to protect her from, um, to Elijah, but he says, let her be. He recognises her distress. And it's interesting that he says out loud, the Lord has, not, has hidden from me what her distress is. Now, hearing that, our smart, discerning woman would have thought, hmm, okay, so he doesn't know that my son has died. And in a way, only our Sherman woman can. She triggers her story by saying, to verse 28, did I ask you for a son? Didn't I tell you? Don't raise my hopes. I don't know about you, but I find your words quite the response. It's almost like this negotiation threaded in a tone of, this is all your fault, come and fix it. And I laugh when I read that because I don't know about you, but I've had many of those same conversations with God. In my mind, I affectionately call it going around the shed with the Lord saying, excuse me, but please explain. We need to have words. And I know God isn't put off by me being like that towards him. Because it's in those moments that we're really honest with him about how we feel. That's when he extends tremendous grace. And I feel kind of better knowing I've told him what I thought. <laughs> and another thing key to note in the midst of our crisis, we need to be honest with God too. We need to feel like we can say how we feel, 
not hiding our gut reaction thinking we're not allowed to. We're reverent to God and fearful of God, but he's our father and we can approach him that way. And Elijah gets this too. And he knows what the issue is now and he responds to her with real um, urgency. He knows it isn't her. He knows it isn't her husband and he knows that it's the child. So he says to Gehazi some very specific instructions. He says, tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand. And Tina taught us about staffs last week, didn't she? So we know the significance of that. Don't greet or salute anyone. And if anyone salutes or greets you, don't answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But again... Our gutsy girl, upon hearing those instructions from Elijah to Gehazi, doesn't sound like um, she doesn't like the sound of Gehazi being sent on his behalf. Remember, every time has been the case, she's dismissed Gehazi rather wanting Elijah to act, and she isn't happy with this idea. And again, she speaks and she negotiates with Elijah, saying, No, I'm not leaving without you. You're the one I need. You're the one that can make this right. You're the one who has control over this situation. You're the one that I'm putting my trust in. And again, he's persuaded by her. And just like she did when he offered her a blessing the first time and declined it, he responds to her plea and they head off together. Now remember, by this time it could possibly be 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night. And Gehazi's obedient to Elijah, rushing actually. Elijah tells him to run 32 k's on ahead with the staff, not to stop. Five hours there means five hours back. Except this time it's dark and it's cold. I wonder if they talked. I wonder what might have been their conversation for five hours as they travelled together to face this crisis. And Gehazi obediently gets there first and does what Elijah asks him to, but with no response. And in true love and commitment, good old Gehazi, he runs back to meet them and tells Elijah that that he is not awakened. So finally, they all arrive. By this time, it would have been approximately midnight. And Elijah heads up to his room. Perhaps the lamp was burning. And he no doubt sees the boy dead on his bed. There's no doubt about that because he'd been dead for 12 hours now. And the story goes on to say that Elijah shut the door on both the woman and Gehazi and he prayed using the warmth of his and the life of his body to restore life to the child with the boy sneezing seven times. There you go, Craig. Seven times and opening his eyes alive. Can't you see the picture on the other side of that door? The woman and Gehazi standing there, silent, waiting, hoping. Have there been times in your life when you've been waiting, hoping, standing in front of a shut door? It's hard. Wondering if that shut door means, do I need to stop from proceeding? as was the case with this shut door, because God is at work behind it, putting things in place. But remember, a shut door doesn't always mean that there's no way through, but perhaps rather it means that there's miracles happening behind it. Then 
Elijah summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shumanite. Our fourth encounter, when she came in and he said, take your son. And what was her response this time? She came in and fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Another miracle she'd seen happen at this door. The concept of being able to have a child happened at this door. Her precious child walked back to life, being dead after 12 hours, happening at this door. Four occasions, four different stances, four different responses happened at the door. The first time, politely standing there, declining a suggestion or a blessing, offered her for something she'd done, that was, she was to be blessed for, a thanks but no thanks response. The second time, standing, scoffing at Elijah, that something so personal and deep could possibly have a reality for her but receiving it because the blessing was spoken directly over her. And this was her plan that was about to unfold. And the third time, going to the man of God, him recognising her from afar and asking for his help on her face, at his feet, reminding him of what he had given her and knowing with him all things were possible. The fourth time, again, called by the man of God and given her blessing, a miracle performed which honoured her and restored to her what had been taken. This time, bowing in total submission and gratefulness at the restoration of what was so precious to her. You know what? Our Father wants to acknowledge and salute, which means to bless and give us hope when he knows that what we go through comes at a great price. Can you identify with any one of those four occasions? Perhaps you're standing in the doorway, having received a word from the Lord himself, talking to you, reminding you how much he loves you, reminding you of your obedience to him and how pleased he is. And he's given you the desires of your heart. You will recognise that as a blessing for you in that moment and you'll know it. God too notices when we do well and he wants to reward us and reward our efforts. Don't get caught off guard when that happens. Perhaps you're on, the, on your knees clinging to the feet of Jesus, having taken the journey to Mount Carmel, begging him to come back with you and journey with you. Well, perhaps you know that you need to take that journey and you're on your way in the hottest part of the day. Remember, he sees you from afar and he will respond, asking you first, is it well with you? Be honest with him. Perhaps you're on your knees worshipping at the foot of the cross today and honouring our Father in gratefulness for the miracle that he's done for you at a door. No matter where you are, no matter what the door, no matter what the stance you're in today, he knows how to respond to you. That the thread you're hanging on to is held tightly by Jesus himself at the other end. We need to keep hanging on. Like the Shumanite woman, we need to establish a spot or a room, somewhere we can go and take our needs and shut the door 
and call on Jesus. Cling to the knowledge that your valley of Acor will become your door of hope because Jesus is the door. Let's pray. Oh Lord and Heavenly Father, so many blessings that we can take away from today and ponder and meditate and draw strength from as we climb our mountains or walk through the valley. Show us the gems that you want us to to apply to our lives. Thank you that the perfect blessing is spoken over us from you directly, Lord. Thank you that you see our silhouette from afar. You know when we make the Mount Carmel journey to the Lord. You know just what we need in that moment. Help us, Lord, to discern what is from you. Help us to identify the blessings or the learnings or to know to just the thought of hanging on with hope through the crisis, knowing that you have those threads anchored and held tight at the other end. Help us to grow in your word, relish in your prayer behind a closed door at your feet, Lord, as we seek your help. Lord, if anyone here today is down in the valley or in the well, hasten their resolve to keep the course and stand on your promises. Encourage them, Lord, and wrap your arms around them, giving them hope from you. We humble ourselves before you today, Lord, and kneel at your feet to worship you, to praise you, and ask that your spirit moves in each one of us to know the hope we can have in you always. In Jesus' name, amen.